Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, my name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis. I've lived with rheumatoid arthritis for 17 years, and I'm also a mom, teacher, and occupational therapist. I'm so excited to share my tricks for managing the ups and downs of life with arthritis. Everything from kitchen life hacks to how to respond when people say you don't look sick, stress, work, sex, anxiety, fatigue, pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. So today's episode is a little bit different than usual because I am actually on the other side of the microphone. This interview was actually recorded for a different podcast where I was a guest in 2020. I hope you enjoy it and look forward to hearing your feedback. What About the Mama, a podcast aimed at shifting your focus from all about the baby to yourself, the mama, even if it's just during these episodes, from Karina Skibinski. Welcome to episode number 11, What About Being a Mama with a Chronic Illness? For this week's episode, I chatted with Cheryl, a fellow occupational therapist, mama, and founder of Arthritis Life. And actually, Cheryl is very much involved in the OT and chronic illnesses community, and there will be a more thorough intro in a bit at the start of our conversation. Can you imagine, though, on top of handling all of the mama responsibilities and pressures of fulfilling that role and also handling and living with a chronic illness? That's Cheryl's reality, and that's exactly what we talked about during our chat. We also chatted about everyday usual mama things, like trying to incorporate a mindfulness practice into our days, her own journey with postpartum anxiety, decision fatigue and how that happens, and why being optimistic can actually be a bad thing sometimes. 
It was truly such a great conversation with a wonderful person. So let's get started. Today's guest is Cheryl Crow, an occupational therapist, mom, rheumatoid arthritis and chronic illness patient, advocate for healthcare and education issues, volunteer for the Arthritis Foundation, board member of the Washington Occupational Therapy Association and an Association of Washington Generals, occasional swing dancer, and the proud owner of a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel named Teddy. And currently, she's working on being more mindful. So welcome to the What About the Mama podcast, Cheryl. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm so excited to have you here with us today. Um, so I know that we were just talking about a little bit about your mindfulness endeavor before I hit record, but could you expand a little bit further on that topic? Yeah, something that I have discovered through therapy is that um, my mind tends to really want to focus on the future. And that feels really productive for me. It feels like, okay, if I can just think through every possible scenario, then I can be prepared. You know, So that is not a terrible mindset to have some of the time. But if you have that mindset all of the time, then you're never actually truly living in the present. You're just living and <laughs> thinking about the future in every present, which then becomes the future. But then you're too busy <laughs> in the future thinking about the next future. So you know, I've um, been doing some headspace meditations and um, mindfulness exercises and um, having like an intention for the day, which is something that a friend of mine who runs chronically friendly yoga classes recommended, like set an intention at the beginning of the day. And my intention is, I mean, it's just to be more present, especially with my son and my husband. Mm, it's definitely a practice. Yes. Definitely a practice. At first I thought, oh, I'll just do it 10 minutes a day and I'll, then I'll, it'll somehow magically... <laughs> transfer into the rest of my life. But yeah, the therapist and other people who I've talked to have helped me realize that no, you practice it for those 10 minutes, but then you have to also practice it the rest of the day too. So yeah, it's been really interesting. So go ahead and share with us a little bit of your journey. So how, how you got to where you are today, you're doing a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of things, wonderful, amazing things. And how did you get started with arthritis life? Yes, I am the kind of person who likes to have a lot of balls in the air, but I do have to make sure that I'm not adding too many at once, that too many that I can not handle. So um, yes, yeah, so in terms of chronic illness, I was a very actually healthy, active child and I had a really happy childhood and I was really, did a lot of sports and I didn't have a lot of healthcare experiences in terms of being a patient until my late teens when my body started just breaking down and it felt like it was out of nowhere. And I was really ups like upset because I didn't understand why. So I go to a bunch of doctors and then it was this, what I now know is a common experience for young women with autoimmune diseases where because you don't uh, fit the mold necessarily of, you know, lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or whatnot. At first you just get told you're not sick. You're just anxious. And so that was a really whole experience that 17 years later, I'm still like processing that because it was a very, it, it was basically a medical gaslighting, which is a whole other mental arena I could talk more about. Basically, you know, I got my diagnosis and then I was, um, so rheumatoid arthritis is a autoimmune disease and it responds really well to some of the newer medications. So I 
have for the last 17 years been in various states of medicated remission, which means I have to take the medication and I have side effects from that, but I don't have severe like physical limitations. Or I've also had periods of time where I've had what's called flare-ups, which is when the disease is very active. And that happened really badly after I had my son. So I got diagnosed when I was 21. And then I became an occupational therapist in my early 30s, had my son when I was 32. Yeah. And then my rheumatoid arthritis was really bad for a little while after he was born. And then it still was bad for a couple years. And then I got put on a new treatment and it's doing better now. And I started Arthritis Life two or no, one and a half years ago. I was working in pediatrics as an occupational therapist previously. That's what I always wanted to do. And and that's why I went to occupational therapy school. But um, I discovered during occupational therapy school, huh, there's all these tips and tricks I was never taught as a patient ever. And so I thought, that's interesting. Put it in the back of my mind. And I volunteered with the Arthritis Foundation and I engaged in patient communities online as like a patient, but then I was still like, okay, I'm going to separate my work life from my arthritis life. So my work life is all about kids with special needs and my arthritis is all my volunteer work with the Arthritis Foundation and the American College of Rheumatology. But then it just started adding up and irritating me, to be honest, and irritating me intellectually that why is it that we, and this is just for the other occupational therapists listening, why are we over-serving certain kids, to be blunt, in the schools and outpatient clinic? quote unquote, medical services to kids who need like handwriting. And then there's, you know, people like with really bad rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune diseases who have severe fatigue, severe joint deformities, severe, and they're not being referred to occupational therapy. And I just was like, somebody has to do something Mm -hmm. about this. Someone has to do something. And then Mm -hmm. I realized, okay, that someone could be me, you know, so that there, I had some other acute health issues come up and it made me think, okay, maybe I could do something that's more non-traditional, do something online where I don't have to. I loved working in the schools, but you have to be on the school schedule, right? And I was like, I was assigned to a high school that started at seven in the morning, but also an elementary school. So I'd have meetings sometimes at seven in the morning and then another meeting at 4.30. It's just like not very family friendly. So so anyway, yeah, that's why, I, that's how I got to where I am now, I guess. <laughs> Cool. I love that. It's just, it's, it's so interwoven into your own personal background. Like, you know, you've lived this experience, you know what it's like. And now you've used that in a way to start arthritis life. So I feel like that just adds to that value of what you're, you're bringing to the world. Yeah. It's definitely a unique position to be in when you develop a product or a solution to the problem that you yourself have had, you know, and a lot of people kind of end up starting entrepreneurial journeys because of a problem that they experienced. But uh, for me, it has been definitely very meaningful to say, okay, these are, you know, all the things I see over and over again every day on social media that patients, other patients, and particularly other, other fellow, you know, young moms and dads with rheumatoid arthritis and related inflammatory arthritis conditions. These are the things that they're struggling with. And it's almost like they're begging for an occupational therapist. They're like, how do I clean my shower? How do I cope with, you know, do this or that? Yeah. You're like, oh, this is, there's, there's a profession for this. Like, you know, and everyone's like, oh, aren't OTs just the same as PTs? And so there's a lot of education that has to go on. So yeah, what I ended up doing is creating like what's, is a, um, it's basically a educational, course online, but also includes support. So the two things patients need are they need to 
be empowered and educated on the tools that they can use in their daily lives. And then they also need support because it's a huge life-changing event to get diagnosed with something like this. And so I created like an online course and community for people to go through. And it's been really, really fun. And I've only been doing the actual, that product for the last couple of months. Yeah, it's been really just one of these great examples of that. I think it's Ikagi or Ikagai where you kind of have like, what is, what are you, you love? What are you good at? What does the world need and what can you be paid for? I finally figured out a way to put those all together. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. (laughs) And we all lived happily ever after. No. (laughs) There we go. Man. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's wonderful. And I just love your your videos on Instagram. I've been following you for a little while, but and your YouTube channels too is amazing. Just the reels, you just like dove right into it. And the TikTok, I'm just like, whew. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, and that's what's so kind of weird is that my worlds are all colliding because I'm able to use like my background as like a swing dancer to make like funny videos that are like dance videos. And actually, one of my weird claims to fame is that in 2011, when I was a first year OT student, they had a student video contest and I my video won the contest. And this is back <laughs> when you had to have like th- this, none of this stuff could be done on your phone or like a free app. It was, you had to have like video editing software and you had to spend a lot of time to make a video. Now you can do it in like two seconds, right? But anyway, yeah. so, and what was weird, there was like this foreshadowing because at that conference, they actually brought me on the stage. So literally as a first your student, I was in front of 6,000 other OTs in Philadelphia. I was like, of course, because I'm me. I was like thrilled. This was amazing. But because then people <laughs> recognized me the rest of the conference. And so, and these yeah. two ladies, these like experienced OTs that probably been OTs for like 30 years were like, you know, you could probably make a lot more money doing videos than occupational therapy. <laughs> and I'm like, geez, I'm like, so I'm like gung ho. I'm a first year student. I'm like, I want to be an OT. I'm I'm doing this program. And now I'm like, okay, kind of, I understand where they were coming from because it is a video editing and stuff is a skill that not a ton of people have. Now, again, it's very accessible now, but, but anyway, what I found is yeah, edutainment yeah. is really what people want. They want to have information, but they want it to, to be in an entertaining, not boring way. And for some reason, medical professionals tend to think that boring is better, it seems, because they're worried about, often it seems people are worried that if they use humor or have fun with patients that they're going to be perceived, except for pediatrics, then everyone is okay with being happy with pediatrics, but they're not like, with adults, they're like afraid that it will, it will sabotage their authority. But I, I don't see it that way. I see you're, you're there to help a patient. And if you can help them through using entertainment, then that's great. Win-win. Then that's a success. More fun for everyone. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so how old is your son now? He is six and a half. We celebrate half birthdays. So he's very clear that he's six and a half. He's not six. That's fantastic. Six and a half. <laughs> and I remember those days. I feel like I remember when yes. I was that young, the half birthday was a big deal. Oh, huge. It definitely was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> so let's move into a little bit about the pressures of motherhood on top of living with your chronic illness. That just adds a whole new layer of pressure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's hard for someone like me who was like a planner, again, is I wanted to kind of plan things out, right? And it's kind of like that classic example of when you're pregnant, you have your birth plan and everyone like like at some point has to realize that like the birth plan is not going to go according to plan. (laughs) Nope. Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) It's also like 
the life plan after that, you know, might not go according to your plan. At the time in 2013, when I was pregnant, 2013 to 14, the research wasn't as robust as it is now about what the safety of the kinds of medicines that that are needed to control the disease of rheumatoid arthritis. So the first area of confusion was like, well, this medicine is safe for you, but not the baby, but this medicine is safe for the baby, but not you. And I'm like, well, there's one of me and the baby's inside of me. So like someone just tell me what to do, you know, but they're like, it's your decision. I'm like, what? <laughs> don't, I don't. Can we find something that like works for me and the baby? Or... Yeah. And so there's a lot of confusion around that. My son was breech, and so I had a C-section. And so the problem with that is it's best to go back on your medications right away after childbirth, but also, but they also make you more prone to infection. That's like the main side effect. So we waited four weeks, but then I was already starting to flare up and have more disease activities. You know, especially being a first time mom, you're having to learn how to be a mom and how to have a baby while also learning how to manage your own condition in a state that it might not have been at before, because your whole immune system changes when you're pregnant. And so Autoimmune diseases notoriously get better during pregnancy and worse postpartum. And that was exactly my pattern. Like I felt the best I've ever felt since before I got diagnosed during my pregnancy. And then I felt the worst I had felt afterwards. It was a lot of pain and I was severely fatigued. And I just, you're just out of your mind a little bit in terms of, you know, the sleep deprivation alone. It was hard to um, make decisions. I definitely started feeling like I just had too, it's like, it's too much. I just want to go somewhat, you know, everyone else make these decisions for me. I'm going to go check myself into a hotel for a few nights and then come back and I need a break. I can't escape this kind of these pressures. So, you know, I've always been a very energetic person. I've never really been prone to what I would consider depression in terms of hopelessness or, you know, evolution, like not wanting to do anything. But I know one of the symptoms of depression is that feeling of being overwhelmed, but it's also a symptom of, can be a symptom of anxiety. So it ends up hindsight so it was 2020 so it ends up being that i had postpartum what they what they decided to call it is postpartum anxiety because the primary symptoms were irritability which is like a high energy thing you know that can be either depression or anxiety but also i was having a hard time sleeping which tends to be an anxiety thing but anyway it doesn't matter i guess what you call it anxiety or depression it was a postpartum mood not greatness <laughs> Yeah, you said that. So four weeks after you had the baby, it was when you you can restart taking the medications for your arthritis, right? Right, but they didn't work as well anymore because my immune system had changed. So one of the things that happens with these medications, it's like you're running against the clock because your immune system is making a mistake and that it's attacking your healthy joints. So it's kind of not doing a good job in some ways, but it's still smart enough to outsmart the medication. So eventually, none of the medications most people can stay on the rest of their lives. They usually work for anywhere from five to 15 years. So I've had it for 17 years, and I've been on three main different medications at this point. So you're always kind of trying to figure out how do I maximize my time on each medication? Does that make sense? Because there aren't endless amounts to go on. So, the, so again, that, that's a big decision, right? How long it, the medication I was on was called Remicade. So I have to think, how long do I stay on Remicade? I used to be on it every eight weeks, and then we switched it to every seven, then every six, and every five, then every four, and then we doubled it. And then there's a lot of calibration and decisions going on there. And then there's the baby himself, and he was losing weight. And so we were supplementing with pumped breast milk and then formula. And it was just, I mean, it was a lot. So 
I was just very mentally exhausted by all the decisions. What's interesting is I see now and my husband's and my dynamic has always been, he respects my decisions. And when it comes to like health and parenting, a lot of times he's kind of like, yeah, whatever you say goes, we kind of have a division of labor. So that was the precedent that had been set, right? But then I wasn't Mm -hmm. capable anymore of doing that all on my own, but I didn't even recognize that. So I just kind of took it as face value. Well, I have to do all this. I have to be the one that figures out, should we do formula or not? Or should we do this or that? And I don't think I really utilized him as a partner. I don't think he knew that I could have or wanted to. You know, it was just that part. um, I I utilized my relationship with my parents and my sister, who's a NICU nurse. It turns out she was a great support. But I think I ended up, I think you had asked prior to this that, you know, what would I have done differently? I definitely would have reached out for help and not tried to do as much myself. I think a lot of times in my life, I've been able to kind of be the quote unquote exception. like oh yeah, I have this disease, but I'm overcoming it. Or I'm able to swing dance despite RA. I'm able to do this and that, you know, I'm able to be like, I was a band nerd, but I was also a jock, but I was also like a theater geek, but I was also like friends with people and like a homecoming queen kind of person. So it was like, I was used to be able to have my cake and eat it too. And like parenting, I mean, yeah, having a baby, it just, you really have to be, you know, there is a limitation, you know? Yeah. And I think if you're the type of person like, you know, that that is very much do it all yourself, very much a go getter, accepting that help is hard work. So even if someone is offering help for you, like, hey, let me do this or hey, do you need help with this or do you need to, that's it's so hard for us to just be like, yeah, totally. Well, and accept that. Yeah, help. I think the one thing I was always good at was um, leaving my child with other people. <laughs> so but I don't know what, if that, mm, I mm-hmm. know a lot of moms have a hard time with that, but I never, I didn't. And we he had his first overnight with my mom at like, you know, 12 weeks old or something. And we went to Japan. My husband and I went to Japan for the world OT conference for four days. And when he was four months old, And, um, you know, but I'm like, look back at that now. And I'm like, I shouldn't, I was like in no state to do that. But I was just like, I didn't want to give up what I thought were my, was my norm. Right. And I went to the Nashville OT conference in like 2015, like all these things. I just pushed myself so hard and I kind of did that whole lean in, you know, lean like a million continuing ed things. And I I can see now that, I mean, it's complicated because on the one hand, Sometimes doing engaging in work-related things, like taking a continuing ed course, let's say when my son was like five or six months old, that helped me feel more like myself. It was using my brain in a way that wasn't like thinking about changing a diaper, you know? But Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the sum total of the amount of things I was trying to do was just too much. It just took a toll on my body, so... Do you feel like you were just on like autopilot? Because I know that in those early stages of, of, of when Lenny was around in the very beginning, I just feel like I was like doing things, but I really wasn't like thinking through these things. And then now that I look back, I'm like, what was I like, for example, I, I decided to take Lenny and Lana, Steve's 10 year old daughter to get some ice cream. And it was like in the middle of December and it was like raining outside, almost like sleeting. But I was like, Hey, let's go get some ice cream. You guys, <laughs> let's get in the car. Let's go just be normal. And then now I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? A hundred percent. I think, I think autopilot is a great analogy for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it, you build patterns in your life before and you know, you're going to fall back on your default pattern and it takes a lot of time and effort to build new ones. Absolutely. 
So on top of the autopilot, you've mentioned that you were, um, let's talk about a little bit of the Fed is best concept and how much pressure there is amongst moms to live up to the notion that breast is best. And how is that, how did that relate? How did that play out in your journey? Yeah. So (laughs) it's hard to separate my feelings about it now from at the time, but you know, basically, of course, somebody like me, like kind of a type A, like, you know, overachieving person would want to do what's best. Like you, you dangle the best carrot in front of me. Yeah. I'm going to try that. However, I, you know, um, it's interesting because my sister being a NICU nurse, was very, very well versed in how common breastfeeding challenges are, even with full-term babies. So she prepared me pretty well. Um, to, and I think also having a chronic illness reminded me, you know, bodies don't work all the time. They don't necessarily work. And it's kind of an ableist uh, assumption to say that, oh, it's natural. All women are able to make milk all baby no they are not what really strikes me is that moms we know that not all bodies work because we know the rate of miscarriage or most people figure out the rate of miscarriage and it's scary we all know mothers Mm -hmm. can die in childbirth babies Mm -hmm. can die in childbirth but somehow when it comes to breastfeeding there's this complete blinders on where it's like it's natural it's the thing we should all do and so you know i'm not i don't say i'm saying that like in a kind of sarcastic tone. And I don't want to disrespect anyone who chooses to do it because it's what they want to do or what they feel is best for their family. But but what I think is Mm -hmm. unfortunate about the breast is best mantra is that it completely fails to take into account that babies are born into a family system. They are not in a vacuum. In a vacuum, all other things being 100% equal Breast milk is a better source of nutrition than formula. That is a fact in a vacuum. No one is living in a vacuum, not a single person. So if you kind of put that pressure on moms to say that you should be breastfeeding because it's the best thing, regardless of whatever circumstance you have, that is a major distortion of the actual reality. And just a few statistics from the Fed is Best Foundation, which I find very, very helpful. It's run by a, um, a doctor who has worked. She's actually really trying to reduce the rates of babies that are malnourished because of the fact that, again, so few people who are breastfeeding proponents don't always understand that, you know, it, the estimates are unclear, but between three and 5% of, you know, mothers are not able to to produce adequate breast milk for the babies. And whether that's three, whether that's five, whether that's 10, it's not zero. So let's take that as, you know, into consideration. And it's ableist to say that it would be zero. We know that health conditions occur and that human body systems don't always work perfectly. So given that, um, when all of the education around it is doesn't take that into account and as actually actively trying not to educate moms. There's like slides and PowerPoints people have shared from like medical institutions are like, don't tell them about formula. You're not allowed to educate them. You're not allowed to have formula. Yeah. Baby friendly, the whole baby friendly initiative is extremely problematic in, in my opinion. And I will say I'm not a baby expert, but you know, if you actually control for the variables of maternal socioeconomic status and maternal education, the actual health benefits of breast milk are, from the latest studies, 
two to three babies fully exclusively breastfed prevent one ear infection on the population level before two years of age. And after two years, that effect disappears. Six to seven babies fully breastfed prevents one upper respiratory infection per six or seven babies. 25, every 25 babies being fully breastfed prevents one baby's lower respiratory infection. There's always other ones, but it's like there's zero effect of breastfeeding on food allergies, dental problems, hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, growth. You know, there is a shame around formula that, that it can come from Absolutely. the individual themselves and from the external sources. And it's just, it can be very like, so we, I ended up having mastitis four times in six weeks between when, immediately when I started my medications again, which make you more prone to infections. And I got, I, and mastitis is not fun. It's not just an infection. It feels like the worst flu you've ever had. Like it's a really, really, it was really, my temperature like spiked super high, super fast. And so I weaned him at 10 weeks. And then I, you know, I would go out and have the formula. And it, that, the day I weaned him was like the hugest relief. Cause again, it was like, all these decisions and okay, so I was pumping around the clock and to supplement and cause he was losing weight and then we were supplementing with formula, but then we were also supplementing with pumped breast milk, but also it was such too much. Like breastfeeding is a physical act that requires labor, energy, time on the part of the mom. So a lot of people like breastfeeding is free. It is free if you don't, it's free financially. It's not free account a mother's time and a mother's energy and emotional there's a lot of emotional pieces to it yeah. I, I think yeah people just don't take into consideration the big picture yeah so like you were saying you know breast is best in a vacuum of course but then what about the lifestyle what about the mom you know what about the family what about the systems that this baby was born into mm-hmm. and where, you know, there are benefits to breast milk, like we mentioned, like you mentioned, but where do those benefits outweigh the mom and her needs and, exactly. you know, her, her mental state and, and everything that she's going through? Like, where, where is that balance? Where's that benefit? And so then you have to ask yourself, is it really that beneficial? And, but then also like finding formula is, mm. is, is, is a whole journey in on itself. And figuring that piece out because you don't really learn about that either on top of that because people just assume that you're just going to breastfeed, you know? Totally, totally. And any any occupational therapist listening here, I honestly think a great um, business idea, and I've thought of this myself, but I'm going into the arthritis camp now, but is being a formula feeding consultant. If there's lactation consultants, there needs to be formula consultants because there's a bunch of different bottles to choose from. There's a bunch of different nipples. There's different nipple flows. Where do you start? There's soy free, there's soy formula, there's dairy formula, there's this formula that's imported from Europe. You know, yes, there's such a need for better education around Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, it could be because, and a lot of times there's this kind of like people feel like they have to explain why, you know, for a while I was like, oh, I couldn't breastfeed anymore because I have RA or people can't breastfeed because they've had, you know, breast cancer or, or many, many different reasons, but really it should just be a mother's and a family's choice, like for what works, you know, I want to sleep more than two hours at a time. That is important for my mental health. Like, you know, Absolutely. I would never, I would never even try to breastfeed again. Personally, it just wouldn't, there's nothing about it that is worth it to me because I didn't feel that the bonding actually was better with breastfeeding. I actually felt much more bonded to my child 
once that burden of breastfeeding was removed because I was able to sleep more and I was more present with him. So actually, it goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning about presence. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That because then it's like it just like it's like a relief that you don't have to like yeah. carry the stress around and like, and then if it's not working, that makes you even more stressful. And then it's guilt, feelings of guilt are are mixed in oh. to those feelings as well. Yeah, and I did want to mention that having challenges with breastfeeding, whether it's insufficient intake or the baby's latch not working well is is a predictor of postpartum depression. So women who experience difficulties with breastfeeding are at a much higher risk of postpartum depression. So it's, it is related overall to maternal mental health. Um, so yeah, like, yeah, and I think as OTs, we're trained to look at the big picture, right? I don't follow someone around who's middle-aged and slightly overweight and say, excuse me, um, it's best to exercise. Have you exercised today? It's best. 20 minutes exercise is best. Like I don't follow them around. Do you need your 20 minutes? Yeah. Are you, excuse me, um, what's your cholesterol? Are you, what, are, what are you eating? Like we don't, why do we do this about babies? I honestly think the reason we do it is that there's so much that we can't control and feeding is like the, it's, you know, they always say eating disorders are about control, right? That's something you can control. And I, and I think, that, um, so I'm not talking about eating disorders, but I'm saying eating disorders are, are about control, not, not necessarily about eating. And this, in the same way that fixating on a baby's food source, to me, seems to be a way to, there's so few things you can control. And there's so many gray areas with parenting in general that we all just want to do best. And you're, you're telling someone, there's the only thing that we know for sure is best, other than, let's say, putting your baby in a car seat and putting your baby to sleep on a flat surface is breastfeeding. Like, that's it. You have to do those things. Otherwise you're not doing the best, you know? So that's such a good point. Cause you're right. There is, a, there's like really nothing that you can control in parenting. I mean, there's a couple of things here and there, of course, but like, really it's babies in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah. It's such a humbling experience. I mean, like when people say, you know, like, what advice do you have? Like I'm pregnant. What advice mm-hmm. do you have? I'm always like, take care of your mental health, learn how to accept the things you cannot control, you know, and if I could have done anything differently, I actually I would have not only gone to my own therapy earlier, just to work on kind of my underlying, you know, um, issues. And, but I also would have gone to, oh, I, I'll send you this link. There's a John Gottman class that's, um, prepares par- couples for bringing home a new baby. And, and he's actually a marriage. He's like a world renowned, John Gottman is a world renowned marriage therapist and he said that yeah he was studying you know the things that make a marriage work really well and things that make it not work well and it was no no surprise that having a baby is one of the most stress-inducing experiences for a lot of couples and so he does a class I think it's like a six to eight week class with couples um, talking about their relationship like to me that's so much more that would have been so much more helpful to us than like a childbirth or a feeding class because they both ended up being completely irrelevant in the end, you know, but more power. If that's your life's passion, you love doing like childbirth classes. And, you know, to me, I'm just, I think what's going to be important to my child in five years and to me in five years, you know, nobody go asks the kindergartner, were you fed breast milk or not? No one cares whether you were a vaginal birth or a C-section. I guess some OTs think that there's some differences in terms of reflexes or whatnot. I personally I don't think that's the hill I'm going to be willing to focus on. I'm focusing on the things that, you know, we know for sure are going to happen, which is you're going to have to have your, take care of yourself and your own mental health. 
and it's going to be a stressful experience, you know? Prepare yourself for having a toddler. Just keeping the big picture in mind, really. Just keep the big picture in mind. And I also have found that a lot of the moms that I've connected with have said that one thing that they wish they would have known prior to the baby arriving is the fact that relationships do change so much and the dynamics change so much and the way people do things are, are a lot different and, and how are you going to pick and choose your battles with that? Yeah. It's just, um, and you know, of course it, it makes sense, right? A baby comes into the picture. Of course things are going to be different, but when you're in the throes of it, it's, it's amazing. It really is something that could be definitely prepared for. And yeah, it was really interesting because a couple years before we had Charlie, when we were just engaged, we had gone out to dinner with a couple of friends. This is going to relate, I promise. <laughs> and we were saying something like, you know, he, my husband and I just get along like at baseline. We're really good friends. You know, we're like, you know, marry your best friend kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, we love each other more than friends too, but <laughs> you know, we just get along. <laughs> we were telling them how we don't, we don't really argue a lot. And they were like, and it was really, I mean, I, I should tell them that I still remember this because they were really, they're really nice and they're really good friends, but they were like, oh, they like seemed to think it was a bad thing. And I was like, why? We're cool. We're awesome. We don't fight. And they're like, well. <laughs> then you guys haven't practiced fighting. You don't then know how to argue with each other if you don't ever do it. And I was like, ooh. And I've learned since then that, yes, some people, couples are, and I, my husband are both kind of conflict averse, but we also are the kind of people we're like happy 95% of the time. But when we get unhappy, we go from like zero to a hundred like that. Like we both have like a short fuse when we're triggered. We're just not triggered that often. But whoa yeah like I and I, oh that friend's a nanny so she knows what she's talking about because she's nannied for families you know in-home nanny situation so basically yeah we had to completely relearn how to relate to each other and it, and we're both middle children and so the joke that we like to make you know now is that it's like middle children are kind of famous for being like kind of scorekeepers you know like you're trying to make the other older children happy the younger children happy and you're kind of mm -hmm. trying to see both sides but also you can end up being kind of like well, she got this and he got that. What do I get? You know? And so I would be kind of, and I actually, though, I, I did have to, at one point, I literally, because my husband's an engineer, I made a chart to like show him how much more labor I was doing than him just to be like, like, can you, I don't even care if you change your behavior. I just need you to acknowledge that this is my reality. <laughs> like, that like, this is not, <laughs> we're not doing equal. This is not equal. And congratulations to you for doing what you're doing. Cause I appreciate that. But like, do not be under the delusion that you're doing more than me because that's not true. You know? <laughs> did that chart help help anything? It actually did. So one of the biggest predictors of a marriage longevity, according to Don, Dr. John Gottman, is whether you're open to your partner's influence, which means like whether you foundationally like respect the other person. So even when my husband and I were at our worst, we've always respected each other. And so I think in retrospect, that's what helped. But there was a point like, I one of again I didn't know this at the time that postpartum anxiety can manifest as irritability and it was definitely kind of projected towards like whoever was closest to me which ended up being you know my spouse or like a random like mm -hmm. plastic bag that wasn't opening correctly at the grocery store I remember having a meltdown like oh just carry this stupid bag open <laughs> like you guys those of you who know me you're like Cheryl like what like this is not me you know this is not how I normally am I'm like don't sweat the small stuff you know. So at one point he's like, he's, he's a lot, he's introverted. He's a little more 
he's definitely more introverted and more private than I am. He doesn't like do social media and stuff. So he kind of had a moment where he was like, do you like, do you like me anymore? <laughs> like, it was really sad. And I remember just saying like, I don't like anything right now, including myself. And that was my kind of moment of truth when I realized I need to go to therapy. I still hadn't go to therapy at that point. Oh, because, and I'm really glad I just thought of this, because I'm optimistic. And that's actually not a good thing. Don't be optimistic sometimes. <laughs> it's not a good thing if you're hurting. Because if you're optimistic when you're hurting, you keep thinking mm-hmm. things are about to get better. So you don't take proactive action. Because you're like, it's about to get better. It's about to get better. Yes. Oh, it's going to get better. We'll just wait till he's one years old. Just wait till he's one and a half. Just wait till he's two. And I remember my therapist told me, I went when he Charlie was one year old. And it was right around when my husband had that conversation where I was like, I don't. I don't really like anything. Like, I wasn't like, I don't like you, but I was like, I want you to understand that this is not about you. Mm-hmm. The only thing I felt good at was work, working with ch- other people's children. And that kind of made me feel guilty because I was like, why am I like good at working with other children and not with my own child? Like, what's wrong with me? I've always said, I'm not a baby person. I'm a kid person. I love upper elementary, like third to fifth grade was my sweet spot. So at the clinic, they would always give me those kids because a lot of people liked the little kids. So I wasn't like, I'm a terrible mom. I was just kind of like, well, I just, I know what everyone's like, it's going to be different when it's your own baby, but it wasn't like, I, I could objectively be like, he is definitely cute. Like no doubt about that in the moment. I just wasn't able to relish it in the same way that I do now. So anyway, yeah, I finally went to therapy. It was because in my husband's very optimistic. We're both stubborn and optimistic. So we're both like, okay, just, we'll just figure it out. One of these, we'll figure it out. And we also are avoidant, like conflict avoidant, but also like, let's not worry about this. I mean, he brought it up that time, which was significant. That wasn't normally happening. He brought up that like, you, you don't seem to like me or anyone or anything right now. Mm. <laughs> and I was, that's that's hard. That's a hard Seems place to be. Seems impossible now. Like I don't even relate to that person that I was. But I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can remember it. I know it was me. But yeah, I mean, I think that's what's so important to prepare yourself for any eventuality. Like prepare yourself when you're pregnant or prepare yourself when you're postpartum. You know, you could end up feeling anything that you never even thought you would feel. You could have postpartum psychosis. You could want to kill yourself or kill your baby. You would could want to you know, you could also get really depressed. Like there's so many possibilities. And I think that we all learn that, but we're like, that's not going to happen to me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to love this baby and feed it breast milk. And we're going to be happily ever after. <laughs> yeah. We're going to ride off in the sunset, just like all the Instagram pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. So aside from therapy, cause I, I have to give my therapy plug here too. I love therapy. I feel like everybody should have a therapist. And even, even if you feel like you're in a space when you're in a space that like a good space, that's the best time to find a therapist, I feel like, because then you can connect with someone before shit hits the fan, essentially. And I am very much pro therapy. Mm -hmm. But what are some other things that are part of your routine that make life as a mama easier for you? Yeah, I think um, even though in the very early days, I, when he was little, like an infant and baby, I had this problem of doing it all myself. I did learn to have kind of that village mentality of, okay, you know, have, and I, I mean, I, I'll be honest about my experience. I mean, I don't know how much of this unfortunately relates now during the coronavirus, but, but, um, you know, like having 
you know, the village around you, other friends, you know, family members, grandparents, making sure that I proactively gave myself a break. I found that when I had a break from parenting, that wasn't work because work is a break, but it's not really because it's not, it's not you time. It's, but it's a break from parenting, but you know, a break that was truly for leisure and recreation. Um, we started trying to go once a month. My husband and I would go on like one overnight, like, or my mom would take the baby for an overnight, or we would go just like to an Airbnb. Um, obviously, again, maybe some of that, depending on where you're living, might not be possible, but doing even just mentally, you know, having a home date night and having maybe a family or family member take your baby, like even just outside, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever is possible to kind of put some routines in place. It wasn't just the activity. It was being able to look forward to it and know it was coming. So that's why I say routine that you know, okay, once a week or once a month, this is going to happen. That was that was really good. And I think I did um, join a class called Fit for Mom, which um, is a franchise apparently, but it's an, it was an outdoor fitness class and it was called Stroller Stride. So the, sorry, the company is called Fit for Mom and the course was called Stroller Strides. And you put your baby in the stroller and then the moms are all, or the dads and moms, but mostly moms were, you know, you know doing exercises um, outside. And so you would walk or jog and then you would stop and then do like a little exercise. And that was really good to like connect to other people who are, I think it's important to connect to other people in the same stage as you. Like, cause you could, you forget. I mean, it's, everyone says you forget and at the time you're like, I'm never going to forget this. But I do forget sometimes the difference between 18 months and two years. Like, oh, yeah, what was he doing then? Or, you know, so having people who are like right there with you to validate, oh, yeah, that was hard. Or, you know, to just be at the stroller strides and see another, you know, two-year-old crying and realizing, oh, yeah, you're, you know, this is just what they do. It's not you. So that that helped me a lot. Today, I also think because right now it's kind of like we're living one endless day. Like we've like literally been all together as a family for six months, like quarantining. But um, because it can all blur together, I actually do, now that he's six years old, I try to make an effort once a day to like really do something together. I know that sounds kind of sad that it's only once a day, but like there's different kinds of modes you can get in, right? When you're with your child all the time. I'm not, I cannot be 100% focused on him and engaging with him all the time. And I actually don't think that's developmentally appropriate either, right? He needs to be able to entertain himself a little bit and engage in his own activities, but, you know, we'll play a board game or, and, it, and it's fun time for me to actually connect with him and remind myself that, you know, this is, um, I do enjoy being a mom at this point. So, mm-hmm. you know, having, just be mindful, yeah. be mindful. Cause I think oftentimes our, our minds are thinking about three things at mm-hmm. once. And so setting that time aside for one activity a day where you're just fully present and mindful that makes a big difference. Yeah. And like developing even like new hobbies. I just remembered this one. So my son and I were watching a show about, um, it's called Nailed It, where people do like cook. And we watched a lot of cooking shows. We watched Nailed It and we watched, oh my God, what's it called? Oh, Kids Baking Championship. Where it's, and he is just intrigued that kids only a few years of him are baking. They started doing these challenges called um, uh, dessert imposters. So you make something that looks like a savory dish like a pizza or lasagna or a hamburger, but it's actually a dessert. Like for the, oh my gosh. So we just like have jazzed up our routines and been like, okay, once a week we're trying to make a dessert imposter. And like, and like we're tricking dad. And like he thinks it's 
so funny you know that we're like dad like here dad we made you a pizza and, and like you know kids yeah. when they're six like they totally can't like they cannot you know he's like it's just like so adorable you know like I mean, right now it feels like, oh my gosh, we have so many, you know, so fewer options than we normally have, right? And that's true. We don't have as many options for activities as we normally would, but we can still have fun, you know? And so that has been, that has been really good. And just connecting to other people, I guess for me personally, I'm really social. I'm really extroverted, as you can maybe tell. So you know, making sure that I have those friend friendship connections, whether that's through social media or Zoom calls or, you know, just connecting to, to other people is something that brings me a lot of joy. Yeah, that's so important. We're we're just social creatures in general. Yeah. People. yeah. And so I think that's really important, especially right now in times of the corona, having that connection mm-hmm. is, is so important. And especially just as a mom, too. You want to feel connected to other moms going through the same thing that you're going through. And it's just, it, sometimes it feels like motherhood is like a club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I, and, it, and I think actually that brings up a good point that I was thinking about earlier in terms of, you know, recognizing that again, humans bodies don't always, you know, aren't always able to do what we want them to do. And like, you know, I feel so lucky that I was even able to get pregnant you know, with Charlie and, and have a child, you know, I don't take that for granted. I know, you know, now I'm in my late thirties. I have friends and connections who are, would, are just desperate to be part of that club too. So, you know, yeah, we talked earlier mindfulness, you know, taking a moment to realize, yeah, you can kind of simultaneously hold two different contrary truths together. You can say, this is really hard and I'm so, so grateful that this is like what I have. Yeah. And one of the things that my therapist taught is a philosophy or theory called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is like the best therapy approach you might not have heard of, um, especially as an OT, because it talks about how you, you know, acceptance is an often misunderstood word, but in this case, it's accepting acceptance of the present moment. So that mindfulness and maybe willingness to, to be present in the present moment and then you commit to what you value and then you take action towards that. So that's where it's really, it's like really congruent with occupational therapy in terms of meaningful activity, right? You say, what do I value? What are, what's meaningful to me? But what, what's different about it than a lot of other philosophies that I had tried to do before is that it says, it states that we don't try to argue with our thoughts. Like with CBT, I found that I was like cognitive behavior therapy. I'd be like, okay, well, how is this a distortion? How is this not? Well, that's not necessarily always what helps you in taking steps towards loving your life and having a meaningful life. You could actually just say, okay, is this thought helpful or not? And can I live the life I want despite this thought? So maybe the anxiety thought is this won't, what if this doesn't get better? Like, let's say I'm in pain because of my rheumatoid. What if it doesn't get better? It might not get better, but if does focusing on that thought help me, it is not really very helpful, Right. So how can I, can I hold on? Can I just allow that thought to be there? Can I pretend that like, I think a lot of times we think of negative thoughts as like a beach ball. Like, so you're like, okay, the good one, you know, I'll, I'll hang on to the ones I like and the ones I don't like, I'm going to try to push them under the water, but you can't really push a beach ball under the water. Right. <laughs> and you just allow it to be there, you know, allow negative quote unquote, negative, uncomfortable thoughts to be there. 
I also feel like, yeah, sometimes if we try to push down negative thoughts, then they fester and they become more, you know, bigger than, than what they, what they could have been. But I like to think of negative thoughts or, or feelings as they can be like in the same car as me, they can be in the passenger seat, but they're not going to take the driver's seat. <laughs> oh my gosh, that is actually the exact analogy that Stephen Hayes uses, who's one of the founders of ACT. He says, your thoughts are like passengers on the bus and they're constantly yelling stuff at you, mm-hmm. right? They're like, oh, turn over. Oh, don't do that. Oh, go back. Go back home. This is scary. Or like, you're stupid. You shouldn't drive, you know, but you just acknowledge them like, hello. Yes, I can hear you, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you take over the driving. Totally. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I think there is kind of a beautiful analogy between, like we talked about before, the things that you can and can't control, like becoming a parent is intrinsically a situation that you have to confront at some point that there are things you can't control. You cannot control whether a child cries or not at that moment. You can do things to facilitate them stopping crying or not, but you can't control at the end of the day whether those things you're doing are really going to work. So, you know, and the same with chronic illness, like there is a point at which my health is somewhat out of my control. And for me, accepting that is actually better for my mental health. You would think it would be depressing to be like, the things are out of my control. Wah. Like I have no control. I like control, but actually it's freeing, right? Because it frees me from having to focus on making everything better all the time. Say, so, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to have pain. Can I still live the life I want with pain? Yes. Okay. Well, let's do it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, Cheryl, how can listeners reach you if they have any questions or comments or they just want to connect with you and chat with you further about motherhood or living with a chronic illness or autoimmune disease or whatever? Yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't the most strategic when I planned out all my accounts and they don't all have the same name, (laughs) but I'm the most active on Instagram (laughs) and it's arthritis underscore life underscore Cheryl with a C-H-E-R-Y-L and also TikTok. It's just at Arthritis Life. Those are the two I'm really active on now, but I also have a Facebook group that's under Arthritis Life Cheryl, just all one text block, no underscores. Yeah, this will be all in the show notes too, just so the listeners know that they're, they're, all this information will be in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. And I just, if you uh, put in your search bar myarthritislife.net, then my website will come up. And um, that's where I have videos and instructions uh, for life hacks for arthritis and interviews with other people, including some moms with arthritis and not just arthritis, but other like autoimmune diseases. So, yeah. Lots of good information. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for your time today, for your insight, for sharing your story with us. I had such a good time on this conversation and I learned so much from you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I'm just really, really honored to be here. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the Rheumatoid Arthritis Roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis, from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. 
This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.